Every year, all members of the Small Satellite community, scientific and commercial, gather in Logan, Utah for the Small Sat Conference. This year's theme was Small Satellites, Big Data. Specs alum and founder Anthony Hennig attended the conference with, and is with us today to discuss his experience and the news items that have come out of SmallSat 2017, this time on SpecsCast. Hello and welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Drew. Hi. And uh, today our guest is Anthony Hennig. Hi, everybody. We are a group of students and alumni belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You, learn, you can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website specs.rit.edu. Today we'll be talking about the 2017 SmallSat Conference. Please let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show for all of you. I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself, Anthony, because I'm sure your titles have changed since like, you last talked. But... Yeah, so hi everyone, my name's Anthony Hennig. I'm a current George Washington University student in their Department of Engineering Management and Systems Engineering. Uh, currently, we just agreed on the title this weekend, but I am the bus manager for GW CubeSat, a recently accepted CubeSat launch initiative submission and soon-to-be-3U CubeSat. That's awesome. I, I, you should rename your title to bus driver, though. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm 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 writing out the organizational document right now. I could totally get that in there. I could just swap it in there, and I think I could get it by. Control F. Yeah. yeah. Find a replacement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, it's pretty exciting. We just got accepted to CubeSat launch initiative. Um, we need to fly mid 2019, and we're flying some pretty cool technology. So that's exciting. That's really awesome. All right, so let's talk about SmallSat 2017. So when, when did the, the conference take place? August 5th to, to the 10th of 2017? Yep, that, right? that is right. So I got to go there with George Washington University. They sponsored my trip out there. And uh, my colleague and I ended up flying out there on Friday. So I left here DCA at 5.30 Friday morning. I ended up in Salt Lake City early afternoon. Um, got to try In-N-Out Burger for the first time, and then the pre-conference workshop started <laughs> that Saturday. Um, so for the first two days of the conference, it was all pre-conference workshop. So uh, SmallSat, as I've been told, has definitely evolved over the past couple of years. It started out just with people who are enthusiastic and excited about their missions, and has steadily grown to an industry conference, a trade conference, a academic conference, and a real great avenue for people who wanted to talk about their major science missions, but maybe just won't at the same scale as the primary missions we see coming out of NASA. You know, small satellites focusing on very specific applications. And more so than other um, conferences, or sorry, I've been told, that you see a mixture of government, military, industry, academia, everyone's here at SmallSat. Uh, this year, it was huge. Uh, we actually ended up taking up one main building, which was a student center here at, at Utah State University. That spilled over into a science center, a conference building, and like a conference and meeting hall, and then a field house on top of it. So there was a lot of walking in between conferences and workshops and stuff like that, but it was a huge conference this year. And is that... You said it's uh, workshops and things. What What's the main um, objective when people go? Do they go to share their ideas or to learn or to network? Or um, like what's what's the main draw for, for attending the small space? I, I think there's a ton of different reasons to go. So my colleague and I with the George Washington Cube said, we ended up going there to, you know, talk to industry partners and get some information that we couldn't get in person. Uh, right now in my computer, I have a, USB drive that we got from one of the vendors there, and it's got all their spec sheets and everything, you know, stuff that we'd have to either scrounge online or reach out to your customer sales representative. 
And it was really good for us to go there to talk to other universities and organizations, see how they solved some of the problems that we were starting to deal with. So it was really, really beneficial for that, to share ideas and share solutions to complex problems. There is also a huge industry presence there this year um, that was talking about, hey, we have this great component that we want to sell. Uh, we are joining forces with this other company to provide a new ADCS system. And so you could walk anywhere. I, I think if you wanted to, you could essentially build a CubeSat at the conference with all the vendors present. Um, in some cases, uh, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center did a really, really amazing job. Uh, they totally hooked us on a piece of flight software and everything, and it was like, this is exactly what we need. So we wouldn't have easily figured out about that unless we had gone to SmallSat, and they had run, run workshops and meetings and presentations about some of their open source uh, flight software, simulation software, validation software, and so it gave them a chance as a kind of a research partner to show off what they've been doing. And then finally, I think one of the biggest things is it's a great way for student groups to show off what they're doing too. Uh, in this case, most of the pre-workshop conference and everything was actually students or members of foreign space agencies or space agencies here within the U.S. talking about the cool stuff that they've been doing or showing people that, hey, we've managed to fit this gigantic telescope within this small frame. Uh, one of the most I guess abundant speakers at the conference was Planet, which was formerly known as Planet Labs. And they had really gone to SmallSat to discuss how do they handle triage, how do they handle turning on 80 satellites at one time, like they just launched in the PSLV C-47 launch back in February. And so they were actually giving away, like, this is how we handle CubeSats, this is how we automate things, you know. This is how we manage all the different problems that are coming up with them, or we choose to turn them on or turn them off or organize and schedule them. So a, a great avenue and a great place to share ideas uh, in a beautiful part of the country. I've never been out there. And, you know, if you needed information, you could walk up to someone and ask, and they would help out. So it was pretty fun. Yeah. We we talked about uh, the SmallSat conference 2016. Um, our, our other host Augie actually went there too. So uh, this is two years in a row where we've been able to talk to someone who is actually at the conference. But um, he said the same thing. There's a really it seems like the SmallSat community is really tight knit and and open. Um, like everybody's you know doing their own thing, but sharing what they can to to help everybody else along. Um, and it, it's really inspiring to see that camaraderie, um, especially when, uh, you know, younger people like, uh, members of the ac academia, um, are just getting, getting their start in spaceflight and it's bringing all this cost down. So these people are, you know, able to do really cool stuff that, that would have been limiting. Oh, uh, just in terms of the logistics of this event, was it primarily booths that were set up where you could go and talk to these representatives from the different companies and different schools? Um, or was it, uh, were there keynote speakers? Was there anything like that going on, or, or, or was it just how the event was set up? So I'm double-checking the name on the keynote speaker. It was Mr. Robert Cardillo, the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and it definitely set the theme for the event. When it comes to the workshops, the workshops were always happening on the primary stage. Students were typically out in the field house showing what they were doing, either with a postal uh, presentation or with a like an actual small booth. Industry portals were placed all over, um, primarily in the field house. Like the field house felt like a bazaar, right? They had people from like the ESA, from Arion Space. Um, you could just like go around and they had demo pieces. And it definitely felt like if you tried hard enough, you could go to every vendor and like take a piece of hardware. And by the end of the conference, you could definitely have something walking, which was kind of neat. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, so throughout the whole place, it was completely packed with vendors showing off what they have or providing certain opportunities and services, um, students in the field house. In the main building, the student center and everything, you saw a mix of government, academia, key sponsors, and international sponsors, and that, that event space. And I would say consistently over the course of the seven days of the conference, that event space was packed. 
Um, they already always had presenters speaking. Uh, every so often, there was a 45-minute break for either the famous Aggie ice cream, or snacks, or coffee, or something. <laughs> no, seriously, small set is worth the ice cream alone. Like it's, oh it's <laughs> delicious. No, and I thought everyone was goofing around. They have a picture, and I don't know how we can communicate this over the, the airwaves and everything. But like this is one of the major pictures and everything is is just a man enjoying ice cream. He's so happy. And let me tell you that ice cream is amazing. It's like made on campus and everything. But like this is Aggie. And that's like a quarter of the page. It's a. It's just this picture of this man. He looks like you know he looks like an engineer. He's got an ice cream in his hand and he's just just pure utter joy from this ice. What would happen is like what? I I might have I might have done this once or twice. But I'd be sitting in the main exhibit hall, and I'm like, oh. And I'm looking through my notes, and it's like, oh, oh. They say, like, oh, Monday ice cream social in the field house. And I'm like, I should probably go. Like, it could be, and I was like, I should, I should probably go and get some ice cream right now. But for real, though, it's really good ice cream. It's really good ice cream. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, it was all, you know, the conference took up a huge amount of space, and uh, everyone was mixing, and everyone was talking with each other, and everyone was dealing with really complex problems, but the community was great for it. And so you had the workshops constantly going, you had the industry portal show up Monday through Thursday, and then just about every night of that main Monday through Thursday, there's always socials happening afterwards. Um, either sponsored by a specific company, or sponsored by the Space Dynamics Labo uh, Laboratory, who put on most of the event. Um, so there was always something to do, always people to talk to, and usually always food on hand to help facilitate that talking. <laughs> now the theme was small satellites, big data, and you also said that the keynote speaker set the tone for the entire conference. And what was that tone? That tone was, let's push what CubeSats can do, which I, which I realize now that I'm saying it is probably like, well, let's always try to push the limits of what we can do. But that came out in a couple different ways. Um, one such thing is CubeSats at, at, on their own, or small sets in general, um, we're talking up to the 100 kilogram plus range, they can be limited with what they can do in terms of their mass. Uh, for example, optics, right? You need to sometimes extend out for optics and everything. But in numbers, these small sats can provide, you know, synthetic apertures and everything. You can actually constellation fly this. Um, one such presentation that really stood out was an X-ray observatory. And the idea was that these two CubeSats, 60 CubeSats, would actually fly in a same semi-major orbit, but with different um, eccentricity. And so that way they formed a artificial and like an artificial telescope that was a couple thousand meters in length and everything. And so they'd constellation fly, and one would actually point its detector through the central body of the other one to view X-ray sources. Hmm. And so you, you saw a huge discussion about, like, let's actually change what we're using CubeSats for. Or now that we're getting smaller and smaller with our technologies, Let's try to see, you know, is a CubeSat just a CubeSat by itself, or can a swarm of CubeSats really provide a lot of data? Um, so that was one of the big things, the constellation and formation flying. Um, another one that was really interesting was pushing that 1U CubeSat standard. Um, so we saw a great presentation from the friendly space ISIS, the Innovative Solutions in Space. Um, oh yes, <laughs> friendly space ISIS. That's how they introduce themselves. Like they had a booth, and they're like, "Hi, we're we're friendly oh and everything." God. They introduce all their keynote speakers <laughs> and everything. Hi, we're the friendly one. Um, and and they were joking, but they were saying, you know, we have a lot of cubesets that don't fit this standard, but they fit this kind of archetype of complexity. Um, you know, that was one of the big discussions. Is that there's something about this scale that makes problems solvable. Um, which is of interest to me as a mm -hmm. student, but that was a big thing. It was like, okay, so one use, people kind of use them. Most people use three use. A lot of people are using six use. Uh, we're seeing the 12 use. They made a joke about a board cube being a 2.7 giga unit cube. Um, they said, <laughs> look at that. I mean, when you get to the giga units, you can do planetary domination. So <laughs> they're exploring this. One of the ones that I was really fascinated with was coming out of Wallop's flight facility. 
and they're trying to do flatsats, which is a one-seventh U, and the idea is that you essentially have a space the size of a 3x5 node called in a CubeSat, and then it gets up to orbit, it deploys it out. Everyone is chained together through a series of solar panels, but you kind of space out and everything. So everyone, you get to fly like 12 submissions, and then you have this bus that's coordinating all the activity of these 12 submissions submitted by students. And so you see a lot of people playing with the definition of a CubeSat. It isn't just a box. It, I think SmallSat 2016, or 2017 in this case, I feel like a, a, a motto that I could say now is, it isn't just a box anymore. Because um, you saw a lot, of, a lot of interesting architectures, a lot of interesting system designs, and trying to push, push those limits uh, to get big data. So, yeah. Right. If, if you had to choose, um, like, I, the way I'm, I'm thinking about this is that's really a broad description of, of what was there at, mm. at SmallSat. But if you had to choose, like, a couple major headlines. Um, what were the what were the biggest takeaways from from this year's SmallSat 2017? Okay, biggest takeaways from this year's SmallSat 2017. I think we're starting to see a new type of standardization. Um, so, for example, we're seeing miniaturization of components. That was a big selling point for places like Gumspace, Friendly Isis, um, Pumpkin. <laughs> you know, another big thing that happened about four times throughout the whole week is Goddard Space Flight Central is releasing an engine called NOS Cubed, which allows you to do full end-to-end -end simulation that's coupled with their core flight software. So we're, seeing, we're not seeing standardization around the shape of CubeSats, but we're seeing standardization about how they're built and how they're put together. Um, so is that standard, or is that... I, I know um, NASA, and especially Goddard, um, are very active on things like GitHub, like you can go to the NASA GitHub page and pull everything from Kepler uh, data analysis to some flight software code. Uh, most of it's written in Python and stuff. Like, is that more of a openness or is that standardization? We're developing the tools for small satellite spaceflight. Hmm. Oh, so it's popular in the software is like bootstrapping, like developing these tools that let you bootstrap a, a satellite mission or a science mission um, without having to go through the very basic like building block steps. You can jump to that next step because all that groundwork has already been laid. I, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel like bootstrapping, though. It isn't, it isn't like, hey, well, you can buy a CubeSat bus, even though that's a major thing at SmallSat. Like, everyone's like, we have a 6U bus, we have a 3U bus you can buy. That was a major advertising point. Um, I would say some of the major developments that I saw in terms of defining what a small set is or defining how to use those small sets came out of, hey, we figured out how to deal with this processor. We figured out how to deal with this. We have adapted the mechanisms that NASA uses for like radiation tolerance. And it's getting to the point where the, the problems have become defined enough that there are tools on hand. You know, everyone isn't creating custom bolts anymore. This is, this is how maybe I would describe it. We don't have custom bolts for every single application now. We have a, an Allen head. We have like an Allen button head, socket screw. We have a, a regular hex head. We have these regular components. That's, I think that's a better, better world. There's a regularity coming to small sets, right? We're using the same kind of components over and over again. We're seeing what kind of components might crop up. We are figuring out good schemes to solving the problems. The problems aren't easier, but they're better understood, if you can get what I'm saying. And so a lot of people are talking about, hey, we've solved these basic set of problems. Here's how we did it. Hopefully, hopefully this won't tie you up again. It's kind of like when someone teaches you how to do the derivative of a something being divided, right? Low, d high, minus high, d low, draw a line and square from below. That's what's happening. You know, everyone's having these same kind of problems, but we're figuring out quick tools to say, okay, we can, we can solve this problem quickly and easily, or we can talk to someone to solve this problem that we have. You know, not everyone's sharing the same kind of stuff. And that's, that's something that I think is really cool about CubeSats right now, 
is that you could go to Vendels here at SmallSat and get a computer with this architecture. You could get a flight computer with this architecture. There is still a ton of variety. Mm -hmm. And with that, there is necessary tools for each kind of variety that you could encounter. So it sounds like the innovation is starting to mature. Yeah, but it's it's not slowing down. That's the cool thing that I think is what I'm seeing is that there's innovation in every pathway that people are going down. Right? It is it isn't like typically where you have a dominant design that comes out. The dominant design is the shape of the vehicle. Right? But the dominant design hasn't been how you how you fill that vehicle. If you get what I'm saying. It, it's every pathway is proving to be successful. Mm. And people are all jumping in on that. I think we're seeing a massive boom. I mean, they were talking about how the whole thing used to just be in one building, and now they're in two, three buildings. Uh, they've had to help all their catering and everything because of it. Um, and you couldn't walk a few feet without seeing like a booth for something cool. <laughs> uh, they had a whole room dedicated just to the Japanese Ministry of Economy, which was crazy. Um, they had rooms upon rooms upon rooms of, hey, you want to do something with a small set? I've got something for you that would probably work with your choices that you've already made. Um, so that was really oh, cool. Wow. So there were like payload ideas too, like like actual payload vendors. There were some payload vendors. Um, uh, last year, um, Augie mentioned seeing FedEx there oh, because people had a problem shipping their their CubeSats from to the launch site. For yeah, example. I've got a FedEx bag so. right now. Um, <laughs> you know, they have they have people who are just like, hey, there's this thing called Global Star, which is a communication network in high Earth orbit. They're like, we'll sell you time on the Global Star network. Um, there were companies who just sold reaction reels, nothing else. There was, I, I think it was Mitsubishi. And I just seen like Mitsubishi there. I'm like, why, why is that here? Okay. And they just have gigantic reaction reels. Um, you had people who just sold solar cells. Um, let's see. Okay. This brings me to another point, another conversation point that I wanted to bring up. Um, and that's like, we talked about the, the major, the theme, the major shifts that we've seen, but. Like, what are some upcoming developments um, that that you're seeing, like, just get to that point where, you know, that's going to be the next big thing or, or everybody's kind of getting behind? Propulsion. propulsion. So propulsion at the CubeSat scale and and not, not, you know, I think one of the biggest... You mean like orbit changing or like like if you want to, you know, yeah. go cislunar, like what, what scale here? Really? I would say the, I saw a presentation that was propulsion at the 1U scale. That was full three degrees wow. of rotation plus station keeping, which is similar to what wow. we're doing with uh, George Washington. But I think, you know, they had three or four major sections just about propulsion. And Planet even brought it up in that they use differential drag. They actually rotate their CubeSats to help spread them out. Right. Um, we saw thruster designs that used molten gallium. We saw electrospray thrusters. We saw resistor jets. Um, one of the big ones was talking about Cornell and how they're using electrolysis and breaking down water into hydrogen and oxygen and recombining it and using that to fly. Um, it felt like every three or four presentations or every three or four 15 minutes, they were uh, talking about, hey, well, we're going to use this propulsion system. Or a CubeSat, and we're going to fly with it. Um, one of the big things that we saw was about three or four major uh, presentations from people flying on EM1. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, Acrylis, for example, talking about how they are going to use um, essentially as much gravity as they can to get their vehicle in lunar orbit. And at the same time, they were just packing it full of pr propulsion systems. Uh, we saw a lot of deployables. I would say, like, every time you looked at um, kind of more mature CubeSat presentation, it didn't look like a CubeSat. Like, I don't, I don't think I saw many boxy rectangles. Um, they had the aerospace... What do you mean? So, for example, the, I think it was the Aerospace Corporation. I'm going to have to look around. But they were primarily talking about reflector rays. And so, essentially, most of these CubeSat... A lot of these CubeSats that's going up were actually have a... Uh, a 3U panel that pops up, folds out, and turns into an antenna dish. Huh. So I don't think I saw many presentations that didn't have a deployable of some form 
um, didn't extend something to do something. Uh, the U.S. Naval Academy was actually talking about um, two, three U CubeSats that uh, get expelled, disembarked. I don't know what the official phrase is for being shot out of the space station, but that doesn't sound like the right one. <laughs> <laughs> and then they come back together, and then one of them opens up and deploys arms. And it carries around like a bunch of little blocks with itself and then manipulates the blocks with deployable robotic arms at the 3U scale, which is like, okay, that's cool. That's, that is <laughs> awesome. Is it that like propulsion is just a problem that really hasn't been solved yet and the people that are good at CubeSats are using deployables or are deployables seeing a lot of new developments too? I think deployables are getting way more mature. Um, so going to all these vendors and everything... They're talking about, oh yeah, we have deployable solar arrays, we have deployable antennas. Um, there's a great presentation from JPL, I believe, that actually deploys a parabolic dish antenna that's about, uh, I think, about 40 centimeters in width from the end of the 6U CubeSat to do radar sounding. Mm -hmm. um, they had a lot of the EM-1 missions that actually feature what I could call quadruple deployable. So it's a 6U, so imagine a thin box that is three, two, and one in dimensions. And then along the three by one dimension, they pop out solar cells that then pop out again and again and then again, and then they rotate them. So oh. all, of, all of a sudden, yeah. So all of a sudden you have this 6U suitcase size satellite deploying something that you typically only see on a, on a much larger satellite. Um, I would say one of the sponsors people kept on bringing up a lot was Tyvek, because uh, Tyvek is supplying a 6U CubeSat to a technology demonstration mission. And if you didn't, if you didn't hold like a grapefruit next to it for scale to actually see how big it was, you you'd swear this is like a, a legitimately large spacecraft. It has propulsion. It has solar arrays that deploy I think three or four times out and then rotate around the base. But no, it's do you remember which mission this is? Um, it's a techno. I think the Pathfinder Technology Demonstrator. Tyvek is a company. Uh, I re I've heard of this name before. You you can go and, and contract out someone building a small set for you, right? Like uh, Tyvek will supply a bus. Yeah. For example, that's what they specialize in, right? Yep. And let me send an image to you guys uh, right now, and we can all ogle at it. It's at the top of that page, but you would swear this is a actual like class. D kind of oh, wow. yeah you you'd swear that this is actually Looks like a, a flying computer case <laughs> yeah yeah and they had a demo model of it and it's a suitcase size spacecraft propulsion patch antennas horn antennas payload is space and everything huge deplorables all of the six U scale wow. and I think it's because wow. yeah there's something about the scale and the size of small sets that make them really really good for these big science big data applications and. People haven't found the boundaries that much yet, but I think we started to see some of it during the conference. Um, mm -hmm. As I talk about all these cool deployables and everything, I would say there wasn't an equal number of, of these presentations with respect to the propulsion talks, but, but um, there was apparently a lot more discussions about heat management. And that is because you have these gigantic systems producing a tremendous amount of power and propulsion systems that generate a tremendous amount of power. And I think we're starting to see kind of the boundaries of the problem solving or the, the complexity mm -hmm. involved with CubeSats. Because all of a sudden you're, you're shoving a tremendous amount of power, like lithium ion batteries, gigantic solar panels that collect a lot of light, now in a very, very small package. And so you saw there's actually a lot of companies just there selling thermal management solutions. And there was discussions about, okay, if you build up too much heat, how do you handle that? Um, which apparently wasn't so big in previous years. So that was cool. Because there wasn't a problem in, in previous years. Yeah, we're, we're getting to that complexity kind of level that's allowable, right? Like, you can get up to so big and then you start incurring, start incurring huge complexity costs, because now you have to manage thermal instead of just painting your solar panels with emissives. So. And something that CubeSats and this small sat size has been known for is relatively cheap, relatively quick turnaround, um, and an efficient use of resources. But they've also had the issue of reliability, where 
you know, the numbers thrown around that half don't even turn on. So, yeah. is there any push towards improving the reliability of these? To follow up on Drew's question, were the majority of people who were presenting at SmallSat first-time CubeSat builders who were presenting new missions, or were they recapping flown missions? And like, how much experience do these teams have? Um, and as Drew mentioned, is that failure rate dropping below 50% or rising above 50% as complexity is being added? Okay, so to answer the full spot of that question, when I went up to a vendor to ask them for like a spec sheet or data sheet, I would usually need to follow up and say, oh, by the way, I'm a first-time flyer. <laughs> and that would like change their entire tone. They'd be like, oh, okay then. You know, let's make a better relationship. You know, let's, they'd give me more information, I feel like. Like if you said, I'm a full-time flyer, what do you have to sell us? Um, so that was one thing. A lot of the presentations were primarily from really mature programs. So one of the most interesting ones uh, was talking about the Jackson mission on EM-1, because they were talking about their lunar moonshot or their uh, moonshot mission and trajectory flying mission for Acrelis, and it wasn't their first time doing it. This was their eighth CubeSat, for example. A uh, major presentation and talks were given by the Aerospace Corporation, uh, by the DOD and the Science Technology Program. By Planet, I mean Planet gave a ton of talks about running their massive constellation of 160 plus CubeSats. And they were saying for most of these missions, they don't really fail. Um, so you, you saw a lot of presentations, mostly from mature spacecraft models. There wasn't a lot of, hey, we're brand new to this. They mostly ended up in like the education sections and everything, or in the workshops to the side. Uh, there was a great workshop about like deployment best practices with people from Secure World Foundation, Planet. Um, we had a lot of interesting crosstalk with a couple of governmental agencies who showed up and they're like, uh, I'd actually recommend that they don't do that, but they contact us over or something. Um, so that was, that was kind of fun to see, see like these corporations and organizations like kind of go at it, not, not go at it, but like really say, well, we did this. And, and you'd see like the, the guy say, well, you shouldn't really do that. I run this office. Um, I would love it if you got to us way earlier. Um, they had some, <laughs> it just was like, okay, I guess, okay, <laughs> like just stay quiet, <laughs> let them talk about it, listen to what they have to say. Did you get the impression that people weren't as worried about uh, deployables failing or, or CubeSats not turning on, or was it like they're getting better at being more reliable? Yeah, so back to what Drew was saying and what you just asked, huge reliability bonuses. It's getting to the point now where it's like you're not choosing functions to be more or less reliable, you're choosing vendors or suppliers. Like you actually have reputations now that I won't get into much about, um, but like you actually have reputations where it's like, oh, don't go with that, don't go with them, they're gonna try to upsell you. <laughs> There's this guy, he's like around the corner and everything, just tell him I sent you and I'll hook you up. And it's like, okay, cool, I, okay, I'm just gonna go along for the ride. Um, and that's, and that's where it's coming out is that like you actually have vendors who have reputations and you go to different vendors based on their reputation for different things, uh, which was, a, yeah, it was, I, I didn't expect it. There's just uh, kind of one more direction I want to, I want to probe your mind about. And that's, um, we, we talked about, um, you know, upcoming players and stuff, but what are some unexpected things you saw? Um, and, and sort of like the things to look out for um, as either a space enthusiast or, you know, students um, like the members of RIT Space Exploration to look for uh, in small satellites. So it's kind of a dual question, but let's start with unexpected things that you saw. So I'm holding a pen for a rocket launch company that came up to us directly and said, hey, do you need a launch service? Which was kind of interesting. Um, typically, I bet you, all, I bet most of the listeners know and everything, like, oh, well, there's SpaceX and ULA and maybe a few other people. Um, but I would say maybe a fifth, a fifth of all the major like booths and everything were for people with launch services directly appealing to potential customers, which is kind of neat. Like, I, I didn't expect that so much. Um, the other thing that I'm particularly excited about, and I'm happy to start seeing, especially as a first-time flyer, and coming from RIT specs, 
is that there was a lot of support for new programs. Uh, a lot of the education division and everything, a lot of the education talks, and a lot of the discussions and the way that they supported full sign files was really, really big. Um, I come from Force Robotics. I love the program and everything. And sometimes you end up with a situation where you have the tried and true teams that keep on really, really competing hard. And then it's really, really hard for new teams to form and actually start competing because you have these incumbent teams that are just so incredibly powerful. But I think the management of things like the Elena program, which I am a part of, and the management of a lot of these technology development offices, especially with the, the governments of, the, of uh, the countries who showed up, they were saying, whoa, we can actually like support a lot of people through CubeSats. We can do flat sets for new organizations. They even had a lot of groups who were talking about, we do high-altitude balloons. Uh, there was a great group from the University of Cincinnati, if I remember correctly, uh, CubeCats. And they were at SmallSat conference. They said, we don't have a CubeSat yet, but we do have high-altitude balloons. And this is what we're doing, and this is how we've designed our high-altitude balloon program to look like a CubeSat program in the future. And at the same time, you had companies saying, hey, if you've got a low-level technology, we would love to support you. And um, that was that was super exciting. That was like, hey, we don't want to leave anyone behind. We have a great avenue for education, to build skill, to for a lot of companies, you know, we were we were approached by companies saying, hey, we've heard you have a propulsion system. Do you have a vendor yet? And it just was like, oh, this is a thing we have to do now. Like, we have to think about intellectual property when you develop things for CubeSats. And it was fascinating. So big things to watch out for. That was the second part of the question? Yeah, it was, yeah. Okay, big things to watch out for are new inroads to participate in CubeSats and small satellites. There's a lot of support going on for them right now. There's a lot of agencies and organizations who want to give you money to develop things or give you a flight. Um, propulsion systems are definitely on the rise. Another major thing about the exhibitions and the workshop meetings, most of, a lot of them were about communications and how to build better communication packages for longer missions and higher data rates. And then after that is, you know, people are feeling a lot more reliable about CubeSats. And we're probably going to see an even greater boom over the course of the next few years because we have so many industry sponsors wanting to provide, you know, technologies and solutions. We have a ton of agencies who want to get full sum files into space and establish relationships with them. And we're just seeing a great community kind of crop up. Like at SmallSat, there was there were parties every night. You could choose which one you wanted to go to and everything. And I think I went with business cards. I got about a 50% conversion rate of my business cards that I handed out into new business cards for me to talk to. And so it, it ended up being a really great way to interact with the community and figure out who to talk to when you have a problem. Yeah, I have one other question, Phil. Uh, sure. So uh, there's an article on Space News that came up this week. Clyde Space, which is kind of a bigger player in mm -hmm. this kind of vendor for CubeSat parts, they just opened their first ground station at their headquarters. And they're offering like a complete from hardware to operations pat, like provider system. Uh, do you see that becoming more popular or do you see individual groups not only handling the science mission but the bus and operation with their own ground station and things like that. Okay, so one of the big things that I saw, this was with GOM Space, this was with um, ISIS, with currently Space ISIS, um, <laughs> this was with Pumpkin, this was with Tyvek, with a lot of different companies. They're offering these 6U CubeSat buses. Uh, Blue Canyon Technologies is another one. We actually looked at that for a second. Well, great, this is a 3U bus that we can just get off the shelf. What? <laughs> um, and I think we're seeing a couple different directions. Student groups are probably most likely going to stick to building their own satellites for their very specific science missions. But the number of pre-made bus flyers and brochures and pamphlets I ended up with was pretty substantial. It was like, okay, there were maybe 20-some different vendors for fully made CubeSat buses here. And I think it wasn't so much for academia, but I was thinking, I think it's for very mature programs, either 
major research laboratories, like we see, um, like federally funded research and development centers, or for military and governmental applications. I think that's probably what's happening is that they're saying, okay, there's a market for this. There's a group of people who just want a 3U bus that points well, and you can put a gigantic optic in it. Um, there's probably, and, and we're starting to see success in a lot of different di directions. I don't think it's going to fully turn into CubeSats. You just go and you buy the best bus, and then you put your thing in it. I think there's still a lot of room for flexibility. A lot of these like bus, bus suppliers are still piecing together components that they buy and produce. They're just kind of giving you a discount deal on parts of it. Um, but I think I think that market is definitely going to grow because you have a lot of people who want to fly stuff. You have a lot of interesting science missions um, that people were talking about. Most of the presentations were about fully developed missions, kind of ready to fly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a market crop up for people who just want to do like a specific Earth observation application, or you know, it's a famous KSP problem, right? You build a rocket to go into space, and then you have to rebuild the rocket over and over again to go into space, and you really just want to slap a rocket underneath it and get it up there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's going to be a couple different avenues, depending on the type of technology integration or the integrality that you want from your CubeSat. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it crop up more, but there's a lot of people saying the ground services component is the most difficult, so we're going to supply that up front. There's some people saying building a 6U CubeSat is difficult, so we're going to give you a bus up front. Um, and it's pretty exciting. Like, we're starting to see contractors at the scale of small satellites now, which is really exciting. Awesome. Yeah. This has been, this has been awesome, Anthony. Yeah, and if you get a chance to go out to Utah, like, it is beautiful. Okay, so I'm going to be real with you real quick. If you can go to SmallSat, go to SmallSat, go to all the conferences and presentation, get every, oh my god, get every business card and everything that you can. I have patches and stickles and I have a challenge coin. Give me a second, I'll be right back. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. So CubeSat is great for information, it's great for networking, it's great for communicating with people, but some of the swag is really cool too. Uh, I had a friend who just who just went around and like collected everything that they could, and he ended up with like a whole suitcase just of cool free stuff that they're giving out. So like the Mid Atlantic Regional Space Point has a challenge coin that they give out, Fantastic. which is exciting. I have now updated my lanyard for the Smiths. I will, I volunteer at the Smithsonian, so I have a Cygnus pin. I have a, a KSC launch surfaces pin, a Virginia space pin now. Cool stickles. Got a cool patch, I guess. Nice. <clears throat> I know. From SpaceX. I have that patch. <laughs> NASA stickles. Ooh. Crazy Alana stickles. So apparently every Alana launch gets a gigantic patch. It's a CubeSat size patch. It's a CubeSat size patch. So that's oh pretty God, cool. To scale. Um, launch services patch. Some kind of cell phone holster, which is pretty cool. Lights, pins. I, I got a USB hub. This came. Oh, they also gave us a duffel bag, which was pretty cool. What? Yeah. It, to take home all your swag. Um, thank you to the George Washington University for sponsoring my trip. Also, student uh, student tickets are pretty cheap. Yeah, they're not bad. <laughs> Give me a sec. I need to get you this duffel bag because it is sweet. <laughs> I'm a sucker for patches. I love patches. Holy crap! That's a premium quality, dude. Wow. This is a beautiful double it, bag. And I've got so many. Got I got so many removable for flight tags. And I got even more on this side too. Absolutely not. Oh, there they are. It's huge. I even got a cool book that tells you not how to ruin, like not how to ruin space, which is exciting. Handbook for new actors and Yeah, stuff. this was at our deployment best practices, and it's from the Secure World Foundation. There's a free PDF online, so you don't need to go and like pirate it or anything, which is great. <laughs> but they just they go through and they're like, okay, well, there's an insurance requirement. Don't forget the insurance requirement. And they go through and they're like, oh, there's this group called Space Traffic Management. 
example, there's a JPSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command. And you need to call them up every once in a while and tell them that you have a satellite in space, and they'll track it for you. I got introduced to a lot of things that I didn't even think about, <laughs> which is a good thing as a, somebody working on a CubeSat. You know, and I also got kind of introduced to all these really cool things, like if you have a satellite that's about to collide with another satellite, they'll send you a text message <laughs> and give you like an update. They'll be like, hey, your spacecraft yeah, is getting you can do. safety region for another vehicle. Can you do anything about it? And it's like, okay. <laughs> and they'll like put you in contact with the other satellite and you have a telecom. And if your ve one vehicle has propulsive maneuvering, you can negotiate who, who files their thrustles in what direction. Which, which I didn't even realize was a thing. I thought it was like the wired rest. And it was like, well, there ain't room in this orbit envelope for the two of us. And um, <laughs> it was just, it was fascinating. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can negotiate with them and talk to them and send an email. You can get a Facebook chat, solve it, and move your satellites around, which is like, oh, okay, cool. That's, this is great to know about. <laughs> Okay, quick question. So if I'm thinking about the listeners that, that are going to be tuning into this podcast, and some of them might be students involved in programs like RIT Space Exploration and stuff. That's great. There's a student discount and whatever. But going to SmallSat as, I don't know, as an enthusiast or an individual, is that something you saw? Like, is that, a, is that a thing? Or is it mainly for players who work in it or study it? I think it's primarily for people who want to talk about the cool things they're doing or want to enable other people to do cool things. Um, going to it as an enthusiast, I, I would recommend it. Um, I would recommend, you know, it might be good to do that, but it is definitely favorable to people who have a problem working towards a solution. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Um, I mean, NASA has a huge exhibit set up and everything. You have all these different vendors with exhibits set up. You have students with their exhibits set up. And I think that's really exciting, but, you know, it's definitely focused on selling space products, connecting people to their space-based needs, or making sure that everyone uses space responsibly. So, yeah, I, I would, I don't, yeah, it's a good experience. If not, you should head out to that area of Utah anyways. It's beautiful out there. I've never been out there before, so... Awesome. I don't have anything else to, to say about SmallSat. I think this is a really awesome discussion and we, we covered a lot. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot, Anthony. Uh, place for people to follow your project if that's a thing or... Not yet. We're working on that right now. But yeah, there should be some exciting stuff coming out. I don't think I can discuss it much right now because we're still working out and negotiating with a few potential partners and sponsors and everything. But um, You got onto a Gunter space page already, though. Yeah, we are. Did you really? We ended up on Gundel's space page. We had a we have a bunch of students from the Space Policy Institute helping out. They're all they are making a CubeSat how-to guide, so you don't go to jail, which is super cool. Ah, uh, that's useful. And they came up to us and they're like, "Yeah, we're surprised you don't have anything online about the mission yet, but you do have a Gundel space page." And it's like, when did he figure out about it? <laughs> Oh, man. And maybe my, my favorite, and I feel, feel terrible about this story, too, is, like, when you go to CubeSat conference, there was a lot of, like, noticeable people. Uh, Jeff Faust was there. Like, I, I pointed it out to some of all the students saying, hey, that's Jeff Faust. He's in our area. He writes about space. Just keep that in mind. Like, he's pretty local. And they're like, oh, okay, so don't, don't, don't do anything stupid. It's like, yes, don't do anything <laughs> stupid. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with ham radio. I don't know if you're big into like communicating over the ham radio waves and, and, and improving the art of radio communication. But I ended up talking to this guy and that we had traveled with and everything. Very, very small. I knew he was really into the ham radio scene. I had a, my colleague who's like, yeah, this guy can design equipment off the top of his head and everything. Like, he can design radio antennas and space-based equipment just like that. And I was talking to him about our high-altitude balloon launch. Have you told this story on the podcast at all, or the first one? Uh, no. You haven't told this story on the podcast yet? 
I don't know what don't story you're referring to. The fact that we underinflated a high altitude balloon and it almost oh. went into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have, but oh, okay. man. yeah, that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe do you want to edit in a story? Like do a little like Let's just tell it. Go. Okay, so false high altitude balloon balloon mission for R18 specs. We underinflated the balloon. And so it ended up rising for a very, very long time. Mind you, these balloons pop when the internal pressure is way greater than the external pressure, and it causes it to rip. So we underinflated, which means for the time for it to get to the right pressure took a long time. So that means it rose, not very quickly, but slowly. And eventually it hit the, the Gulf Stream and everything. I, I guess it was not the Gulf Stream, the uh, Jet Stream. The Jet Stream. Yeah, and it ended up flying all the way to Sabago Lake from RAT. Which was what about five hundred miles, I think, or yeah, yeah. We said we has any has anyone beaten the speed record yet for a little styrofoam box? One hundred thirty-five miles per hour. <laughs> Fastest club I've nah, Hey, we need to make a trophy. I'll send it to you guys. Um, <laughs> and he was, you know, I was having this discussion with this man, um, and he was talking about like, oh, there's people who always call up and they're always concerned about what's going on about ham radio and everything. And so I, I tell them this story. I said, yeah, we use this thing called APRS.FI um, to track our high-altitude balloon and everything. He's like, oh, that's cool. And I talk to him about the story, and I talk about how we got phone calls and emails from people saying, you know, what is a balloon doing? Even though we were talking to all the air traffic control appropriately, the actual authorities. Oh, yeah, they were very mad at us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would said, yeah, we use this thing called APRS.FI to the guy who invented APRS. Uh. <laughs> and, like, afterwards, we were like, oh, man, we were going out to a dinner party, and we were like, so, yeah, where, where is this guy, Bob Reninga, who we were there with? And they're like, oh, he's at some kind of black tie event. And we were like, oh, okay, then, because this was a luau, and he's at a black tie event or some major gala. And we look up this email about where he is, and it, it includes a description. It says, like, the Utah area ham radio is hosting an event for Bob Reninga, the inventor of APRS. And I'm just like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> I just said, we use this thing called APRS. He knows about it because he made it. <laughs> I'm Good. just like, oh, I hope, oh. <laughs> Um, Were you like bashing it, like saying, "Oh man, this thing called"? No, I, I was like, I was super ever. happy about it, but it's kind of like saying, "Hey, I use this thing called the production line," and I was talking to Henry Ford, and <laughs> he would know about it. He would be like, "Yeah, I kind of know something about it because I made it." But he was, he was great. But you, you had these conversations with people where you're like, "That dude was super knowledgeable. Why was that?" And it was like, "Oh, you didn't know that guy invented radio or something or." That guy, they had the guy who invented the CubeSat standard, and I'm just like, oh man, I'm glad I didn't talk to him, because I probably would have said, yeah, we use this thing called CubeSats, and he'd be like, yeah, I know about it. But, um, <laughs> there was just a great, a great community of incredibly intelligent and capable people there who are excited and passionate about getting others to succeed or making the thing that they invented bevel, which is super cool. and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSpecs, Facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com.